Well, welcome everyone. Uh, we're in a, the middle of a series of, on Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel this morning, chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 23. Turn with me there now. We're returning uh, to the story of Michael. Now, I know some of the ladies who have been here, you're thinking, wait, it's not Mother's Day. Because uh, the last time I preached uh, in Michael as the character was Mother's Day, and we covered the uh, 200 foreskins of the Philistines on Mother's Day. It was a real treat. <laughs> this one landed uh, in the middle of March, so we give thanks. But we're going to be talking about Michael and David and their relationship uh, and all of the glorious things we learn from them. So before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of Samuel, for the words uh, of the Lord that he has recorded for us. We thank you for this um, story between Michael and David. We thank you for David's faithfulness. We thank you, um, Lord, for telling us about Michael's unfaithfulness, that we may learn from both. We pray, Lord, as we open the word today, that we would not be flippant about what we read there, uh, that we would not be crass about it, Lord, but that we would be comforted and convicted in exactly the way each of us needs. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would work powerfully through your word, through your um, the declaration of your word this morning, and that you would go before us, protect us, and bless us through it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Now, over the years, um, you have heard me state quite plainly that one focus of the ministry in this church is men. It's a firm belief of the session that the best way to reform the church, to reform the culture, is to focus on the vocation of men as husbands and fathers. It's a key aspect of what we do here. And, and generally, <laughs> ladies, you, you listen to me turn the cannons on the boys, and you give me a nice golf clap, and you say, amen, go get them. But occasionally, occasionally, what happens is there is a, a, a sermon where the cannons get shifted on the deck of the ship and pointed in a slightly different direction. And that's where we find ourselves uh, today, actually. I, and I think that this subject matter, especially because it involves the womb, is one that you have to be very careful with, very careful with. But if we're going to be the prophetic culture, if we're going to be a prophetic voice to the culture, I should say, then what we need to do is understand what's wrong with the men, what's wrong with them. Now, as we return to Michael, David's wife, she is the counterexample of a godly woman. We're going to be making generalizations. The problem with some men are the women in their life, especially their wives. See, look, that's the chill that I was expecting. Sometimes what's wrong with us are the women in our lives, especially our wives. But not in a general way, okay? You can't just be like, it's her, she's the problem, right? It's that wife you gave me. We know how that went for Adam, right? What I want to talk about is something very specific, a very specific aspect that Nancy Wilson describes in her book, The Fruit of Her Hands. This is what Nancy Wilson says, and I, and I think this is very important. Sometimes I wonder where the church would be today if the men in it were respected as they ought to be by their wives. What power would God unleash through godly men who were respected in their homes? I am certain that lack of respect, and in some cases, overt disrespect, are holding many men back. Thank you, Nancy. I couldn't have put it better myself. Now, what she's talking about is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33. 
Let the wife see that she respects her husband, period. Ladies need to contemplate very carefully and very prayerfully whether or not they are, in fact, respecting their husbands. Do you honor him? Do you show him the deference that he deserves, not because he deserves it, but because of his office, right? If we are the army of the Lord, you have to understand how armies function. Armies function like this. You salute the uniform regardless of the man wearing it. And that is very hard for us. We, we can apply that principle in all kinds of areas, right? Love the unlovely, forgive the unforgivable in people. We talk this way. But somehow it gets very chilly in the room when you, when you turn to the ladies and say, respect the guy regardless of whether he's respectable. There is a principle here that we, that we have an easy time applying all over the place, but we really have a to struggle to deal with it when it comes to honoring, obeying, respecting, and showing deference towards husbands. Respect means to feel or show honor or esteem for, to consider or treat with deference or courtesy, to show consideration for. Now take note of the words, honor, esteem, deference, courtesy. This is what wives are supposed to show towards their husbands. Now, if only wives understood the importance, the centrality of respect in dealing with their husbands, then a great deal of the necessary reformation in the church and the world would start. What sometimes happens in a church like ours when we spend so much time preaching to the culture of of masculinity and maleness is that we forget that it's it's a package deal. If the men got their act together, the world would be going in the right direction. And, and, some, and, and part of that is what the women need to get in order. It's not an either-or. Ladies, you, your calling is to respect your husbands. And if you did, you would start to see some of the change that you are hoping for. Some of those things that you've been complaining about are not going to fix themselves by your complaining about them. They're going to be fixed by your respecting the man that God has told you to respect Respect equips, encourages, it brings great blessing to the entire household. Its absence destroys the household. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 1. The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Okay? Now, how do you fit that in with what we're constantly talking about, about father hunger? How do these two things play off one another? What do these two things have to do with one another? Right? There, there is plenty of blame to go around. Right? Now, ladies, like Michael, you may have perfectly legitimate counterarguments to what I'm saying. Maybe your husband isn't very respectable. Now, I grant that. I know most of your husbands. I, I agree with you. Right? If, if, if that's what we're talking about, you, you don't respect them because they're not very respectable, amen. But that's not what we're talking about. That's not what we're talking about. Right? If you're waiting for him to be respectable, as I like to say, your gray hairs will go down to Sheol in, in sorrow. Okay? That is not what God is telling us. Okay? He, he's not saying wait and tell. Paul says respect your husbands, not if, but respect your husbands. There are no qualifications, none. For now, I honestly and and unabashedly will say this. I don't care what your husband is doing or not doing. I don't care. Right now, I don't care. What I want to talk about is what you are doing or not doing. 
What does God command you to do as a wife? If your justifications trump God's word, your issue, like Michael, is not your husband. That's what, what we find here today is that her justifications are trumping the word of God. Her problem is not her husband. Her problem is not what David is doing or not doing. Her problem is with God and what God has said and what God honors and what God loves. That's what she dislikes. Her lack of res, uh, di, or her disrespect of David is a symptom of her far more troubling disrespect for Yahweh. And what we see is that we are not judging harshly here by a mere snapshot. This is crucial if we're going to go, go where we're going with this sermon, right? We don't walk into Starbucks and see a woman sassing her husband in front of people and say, well, that, this woman's a Michael, clearly. Send her to hell, right? Get her out of here. That's not what we're doing. What God does is he knows the end from the beginning. He enters into the story, and he tells us what his judgment is of the situation. He's not giving us criteria to walk around and start, and, and start calling things by the name Michael that aren't. Right? We get the, the full view from him. There's a long disobedience in the same direction. Michael has a long and troubled history with Yahweh, and her disrespect of him, as we see, starts to spread to all kinds of other areas in her life, especially her husband. It, th- there is a deep problem in Michael's heart, and that's what we're told about. Okay? Throughout her story, she is compared to the matriarch Rachel on purpose. The authors here really want us to understand what is being said about Michael, and they're constantly comparing her to Rachel. Now, Rachel wrestled with God like her husband, but instead of touching her hip, what did God touch? He touched her womb. She struggled with infertility. And, and, And that wrestling with God was meant for her sanctification. Rachel's heart and prayers always remained near the Lord. That is the difference, right? You see two women who are struggling with fertility, uh, and, and how do you tell the difference between the two? Well, one is her heart and lips are near God, and this one's heart and lips are far from God. That's always the difference. It says in Genesis chapter 30, verse 22, then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. He was near to her. Michael's heart and lips are far from the Lord. She rejects God, and anyone who rejects God is fruitless. This is what we have to accept. Those who reject God are fruitless. Now, are all people who are fruitless then reject God? No, please, stop. If that's what you're going to take away from this, stop now. (laughs) That's not the direction we're going. And that's why we have to be extremely careful here. Uh, I I mean, I have six kids. I'll go there. We'll just out this right now. I got six kids, and and, and all glorious, no problem. Let's have six kids. Let's bang them out. One, two, three, four, five, six. No problem. Then when we got older, we struggled to to get pregnant and and to stay pregnant. And and so I've been through both things. I've been through unbelievable fruitfulness, and I've been through the frustration of of Rachel and dealing with a Rachel, and why is this happening to us? And, And those situations are very difficult. And the word of God is offensive all by itself without unnecessarily offending one another. It would be very unpastoral of us to make the wrong conclusions and make the wrong kinds of statements right now. This is a, this is a highly emotional subject. And, and I actually want to get away from the barrenness if I can. Right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Michael and her, her character. We're talking about her heart. We're talking about does she love what God loves? Does she honor what God honors? The story of Michael is given to us so that the daughters of God may avoid becoming Michael's. 
right? And, and she's compared to Rachel all the time because what God wants are Rachel's. No matter what your circumstances are, he wants your heart near him. He wants your lips near him. And, and this is the trap for us. Some, of, some ladies who are hearing what I am saying right now who have lots of children will say, well, see, I'm not a Michael, so this doesn't apply to me. And some ladies who, who are struggling would say, oh, well, I must be a Michael then. And, and this is the constant tension in preaching. When I have hard hearts for... Hard words for soft hearts, the wrong, the, hard, the, the wrong person takes it to heart. When I have soft words for heart, you know, you, you start to mix it up if you're not carefully listening. It's hard hearts for hard, hard words for hard hearts, soft words for soft hearts. See, I'm even confusing you right now. Are you confused? You're confused in the front row, aren't you? That's what I'm saying. It's difficult. So I, I don't want us taking away the wrong lesson. Our attention must move away from the barren womb and expand. God gives us a final verdict of the end of Michael's life, something that we do not have for ourselves. Our final judgments lay far in the future, Lord willing, and the creeps don't rise. Stories like this are meant to give us hope. That is the point. By showing us the way to God, by avoiding the judgment through this counterexample. Don't do this. Okay? Don't be like Michael. Be like Rachel. And Rachel E.B. too. You like her too. Now, Michael is a member of one of the last generations of Saul's house. Okay? We have to have a wider view here than her own personal private struggles. She's, she's the last, one of the last members of the last generations of Saul's house, which God is destroying. So that is an important piece of what's going on here. It's never about individuals. It's always about households. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9 says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Michael has not, she, she isn't leaving and cleaving. She is more Saul's daughter than she is David's wife. And, and part, that is part of the problem. That is part of the problem. She is clinging to this household that is falling down. Her father, in the end, hated God. This whole Samuel series is to demonstrate how the tree of David became a stump from which Christ arose. Now, what happened to David's house? That's what we've been discovering. What happened to David's house? This beautiful tree, how did it become a stump? Well, Michael is part of that household now, whether she wants to be or not. And a household that in David's own lifetime is going to produce what? Rapists and murderers and rebels. And Michael is a prominent member of that household a descendant of a rejected household. She is an Achan right there in the camp of David. And you can see it, not just in her womb, but in the household. Okay, we have to widen our lens. This woman, because of her, she is tearing down not only her own household, but also partially David's. She's an influence in David's household. Now, a productive womb is not the same as fruitfulness. An unproductive womb is not the same as fruitlessness. It depends, right? Sanctified wisdom must dictate what we, how we understand this. The conclusion of the story can distract us from the actual lesson that Michael is teaching us. What kind of fruit are you producing? It's not in the quantity. It's in the quality. I don't want any of that. I'm not barren, so I'll check out of this, and I'll stop listening now. Self-justification nonsense. You may um, not be barren, but like Michael, you may be fruitless. Okay, through this whole series, we've talked a lot about the sons of Belial, worthless sons. 
Men like Eli and Saul, worthless sons who produce worthless sons. Well, those worthless men who produce worthless children have worthless wives. They produce worthless daughters, too. Okay, there, there is a counterexample to Saul, and it's Michael. Michael rejects David, his house, and his message. Psalm 84.10 says this, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And that's what makes David David. That's what gives him a heart after God. He would rather be a footman in God's house than live in the tents of the, of the wicked. And, and what, what Michael does is rejects that. I want no part of that. I'm not going out there. I'm not serving that house. I'm not a handmaid in your house. I'm not a handmaid in God's house. I reject it. There are fruitful handmaidens who are serving the Lord's house and who kiss the sun, the Lord's anointed, and there are women who would rather dwell in the fruitless tents of the wicked. And a crucial aspect of a fruitful household are women who respect their husbands. We focus less on the husband's problems and the husband's shortcomings to focus more on what God has commanded a wife to do, which is to respect her husband. Humbling yourself is the only way to have less self and more Christ. Humbling yourself is the only way to recognize that your husband is better than anything that you deserve. And if you, right? and if you can't say this husband that I've been given is better than, than what I deserve, there is a fundamental problem in your spiritual life. And, and, and to test it, here's a test. Here's a test. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, I have a funny story, just to lighten the mood for a moment. I've said this before. I remember reading this as a new Christian, newly married, new Christian, and I was like, sweet. I have always wanted to go by Lord. <laughs> and I go home and I show my wife, see, sweetie, right there, master is what you got to call me. <laughs> now, that's not what I'm advocating for, okay? That we're not going to have a new shibboleth, and that's whether or not you call your husband Lord. What I want to address is the idea itself. Does the, right? And so you start asking yourself, why? why? Why would Sarah call Abraham Lord? Right? Well, let's go back and read about him. You know, what kind of guy was he? Was he always a man who walked perfectly with God? And yet, she, right? Did he deserve to be called Lord, in your opinion? Now, now, does she do it because simply the culture at the time dictated such a thing, or is the biblical culture itself dictate such a thing? Because most of us think, oh, it's a cultural difference, right? They just did that back then. Well, they did that back then in Genesis. You know why? Because they're people of God. It's what the people of God do. And, and that is the cultural difference. When we run into cultural differences, it's not only because of, of timeline. The biblical culture is different than the one that we live in, in as egalitarian, feminist-obsessed modern Americans. If you can't even imagine calling your husband Lord, then you have a fundamental problem. If you think that that's absurd, and you think right, that, that no Christian, self-respecting Christian woman should ever do such a thing, then your problem is not your husband. The problem is with you and the Lord. And that's why this whole story is such an unbelievable test. Okay? You can't talk about how you're for the patriarchy and you're for the nuclear family and we're going to strike a blow against feminism and then be like, well, you know, she called her husband Lord because she didn't know any better. 
she's just this backwards woman from the Genesis, right? There's no way that any self-respecting Christian woman who's the, the, the daughter of, of the Lord God would ever do such a thing. It, it's a real test. It's a real struggle. Now, if you think it's too demeaning or too shameful or beneath you to call your husband Lord, then, you're, you, then you had better stop calling God your Lord. If you want to honor the Lord your husband, what you have to learn to do is honor the Lord your God. Michael ceased to honor the Lord her God, and so what happened was one of the fruits of that was that she ceased to honor the Lord her husband. And that is what our text is about. And the reason that this unbelievable introduction to the introduction to the introduction was so long is because this is a difficult subject. But let's turn now to the actual text. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 16, and we will try to see this puzzle, this this difficulty, this test. Let's look at it and actually look in the mirror of God's word and see how we are doing. See what he expects of us. So 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses, verse 14 to 16. This is the word of the Lord. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Now, David is dancing with the household of Israel before the throne of Yahweh. It says the whole household of Israel is out there before the throne together, men and women, adult and child. And where's Michael? She's not out there with them. Now, why not? Because she's not a Yahweh worshiper. She's not a Yahweh worshiper. Now, you know, one of the things that we suspected of her back in 1 Samuel 19 is here proven to be true. Now, if you go back to 1 Samuel 19 with me for just a second. What we read about Michael in in verses 13 and 16 is this. Michael took an image and laid it in, in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. Now, if you go down to verse 16, it says, and when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Now, what is this image that she's got that she's pretending is her husband? Well, that is called a teraphim. It's a household god. What is the daughter of Saul, the king of Israel, doing with teraphim in her house? First off, how big is this idol if it's big enough to pass as her husband? Okay, it's more like the statue of David that you would see in Rome if it's that big. She has teraphim. She has household gods. She's not not been a Yahweh worshiper for a long time. The same reason the entire nation of Israel goes out to worship before the ark and she stays indoors is the same reason that she has teraphim in her house earlier. She is not a Yahweh worshiper. She has rejected God, who rejected her father. Her familial and earthly connections are more important to her than her spiritual connections. Rachel, in Genesis 31, uses her father's teraphim to deceive her father also. And what was the point? When she stole the household gods and she deceived her father, what was the point of that? Well, it was to demonstrate right, that her husband was actually justified, that her husband was innocent, that her husband was not the scoundrel that her father was making him out to be. Rachel uses a, a idol worshippers' idols against him. Michael is using her idols to fight her battles in 1 Samuel 19. 
And you see the difference. A godly woman uses the idols of the idol worshipers against them. Someone who is not honoring the Lord uses their idols to fight their battles. And this is one of the big differences between these two women. Michael sees David dancing before the Lord, and she despises him in her heart. Now, let's talk about this for a second. We'll go back a little bit. Okay? When, when, when she was taken from David's household and, and given to another man, we're not told what she had to say then. We're not told when she's then taken back and, and, and taken away from a husband who follows after her and has to be told to run away. She's given back to David. We're not told what she thinks then. Right? She, he's not coming in, and she's like, hey, David, I heard that you were very foolish, and you caused someone to die because you were bringing the ark up. Right? Why are you disobeying the word of God by bringing the ark up in this fashion and putting it on a cart and letting people look at it and letting people touch it? Husband of mine, anointed of the Lord, why aren't you obeying the law of God? Right? Is that why she despises him? No. She looks out on his worship, and she despises him in her heart. He is honoring the Lord God, a, a, a God that she does not honor, and she, she despises him for that. That's why we're told she despises him. Now, Michael is truly her father's daughter. It says in 1 Samuel 18, verses 28 to 29, But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy. Right? After David does well, after he honors the Lord, Saul gets jealous and envious and hates him. And part of that is actually her, her love for him. And I think this is really important. So in, in the very beginning, why does, why does she love him? He's the returning, conquering hero. He's the man who comes in from the battlefield. Everybody is singing about him. Everyone is praising him. Everybody can't stop talking about how great David is, and he kills all of those people. And, it te- and, and then we're told Michael loves him. Well, why doesn't she love him for worshiping the Lord with as much vigor as she loves him for fighting the Philistines? What, what, what is it about him that she likes? What is it about him that, right, she loves that? But, but this, is not, this is what is the real struggle for women. Women are not called to love their husbands. Now, all of us as Christians are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Amen. But, but specifically, men, are, men, husbands, are told to love their wives. Wives are told to respect their husbands. The two men and women run on different kinds of gasoline. This is the way Doug Wilson explains it. The car of woman and the car of man run on different kinds of gas. In the man car, you've got to put respect. In the woman car, you've got to put love. And I think what you see here is that the love that Michael originally has for David isn't enough to, get, to, to carry her forward in the relationship. Because love for a husband never is. Respect is. What David needs from her is respect. She can keep her love. Because love is a feeling that comes and goes. Right? What, what he needs at this moment is respect. She, she thinks he's so great when he's a hero. All this love, all this adoration. But later when he's debasing himself and humiliating himself in front of the Lord by dancing, she despises him in her heart. And it tells us a great deal about what she loves. And what she loves are not the same things that the Lord God loves. Her lack of worship and thus respect for God transfers to her attitude toward her husband. God commands his people to worship him and him only. Michael's failure to obey is spreading to other areas of her life. 
And in this, she is more Saul's daughter than David's wife. Her lack of respect for her husband is a sign of her lack of obedience and faith in God. And there are deeper issues here than just disrespecting her husband. You can see this is something deeply rooted in her. The honor that David is due, for for Michael specifically, and this is different than most wives, the honor that David is due is different, and there's different degrees to it. Because he's not just her husband, he's also the anointed of the Lord. He's also a priest. He's, all, he's the king. Right? He had many offices. And, and what does Psalm 2 tell us? It says, kiss the son, kiss the anointed, right? or, or you will be judged. And, and so she doesn't respect her husband. She also doesn't respect the fact that he's the anointed of the Lord. And she doesn't understand what the anointed of the Lord is supposed to be doing. She's looking out on this whole thing happening, and, and for it, she despises him. And she doesn't just despise her husband. She despises the anointed of the Lord. We go on with the story in Second Samuel 6, verses 17 to 19, and this is what we read. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his own house. So it's not just that he's out there dancing. They're out there slaughtering animals, um, devoting them to the Lord, offering up to the Lord, having a feast, because that's the kind of sacrifice they're offering, one in which everyone participates in eating the meat. And she is far from this. this. All of this is what she looks out and despises. Now, there are, there are parallels here um, between David and Melchizedek. We talked about this last week. Part, it says in Psalm 110 that David's line is now in the line of Melchizedek. And part of the reason is because he's conquered Jerusalem. And whoever is the king of Jerusalem is also in the order of Melchizedek. So he is a priest. He's not an Aaronic priest. He's a Melchizedekian priest. <laughs> And, and he, you, what you see him doing out there is not just worshiping before the Lord, but doing the office of a priest. And all of this is what she despises, right? So she's not just a woman who despises her husband. She's a woman who despises the, the priests of God, the anointed of the Lord. And, and it all comes down to she is not obeying and honoring and respecting the Lord her God. Both men and women participated in the climactic events of sacrifice and gift-giving as the ark came to rest in its new home. And after the participants, each had received a blessing and a token, a, a gift from the Lord's royal priest, they went to their homes. But Michael doesn't eat at the Lord's table. Michael is not tasted of the Lord. She eats at the table of demons, whose sacrifices she offers. She isn't experiencing what's mentioned in Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The Lord is not her refuge, and therefore she is not blessed. Following the conclusion of, this public, of his public duties, David does the only reasonable thing, and that is go home to bless his own household. You first go up to the house of the Lord, and you worship there, and, and you distribute blessings there, and then you go down to your own household to distribute blessings. And and that's what he does in verse 20. It says, And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of the servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Oh, welcome home, dear. (laughs) He comes home and she's not there with a cocktail and a kiss. 
Okay? She is, comes there, and the first thing she has on her lips is curses and judgment. Before David could pronounce the word of blessing, he receives a curse from his wife. Her sarcasm, how the king of Israel honored himself today, is a prelude to a scathing condemnation from her. What had her hopes been when she first fell in love with David, who killed 200 Philistines for the privilege of marrying her? Right? She was quite the catch. You don't go out and, 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 and conquer 200 Philistine enemies and take their foreskins if the, if the lady's not a catch. Right? <laughs> you don't do that just for fun. What has happened to these two? What was she expecting originally? Right? Now she's looking out and sees what he's become. What was it that she was expecting him to become? And her expectations of what he was going to become versus what the Lord has wanted him to become are not the same. And so many women disrespect their husbands for this reason. They had a plan when they were getting married. Right? And, and, and some ladies even go so far as they have a book, and you can go and see exactly what the plan for the wedding day is. And in their mind is a similar plan for what this dirt bag is going to become if you just give her a little time. Right? Just give me a little time, and the doll will be dressed better. Give me a little time, and the doll will be more respectable. Give me a little time, and look. Look at what he's done with the Philistines so far. Think of the places I could take him. And then she looks out the window one day and sees what he becomes, and she hates him. She preferred the conquering warrior. What she doesn't prefer is the humble priest. She began with honor and glory, key terms throughout these books. When the ark went into exile, Israel was Ichabod because the glory had departed from Israel in 1 Samuel 4.21. Now with the return of the ark, glory has returned. But it's not glory of her choosing. Michael was not impressed with the glory of David, and her use of the word is bitter and ironic. Oh, just look at the honor that came back to Israel today. Mm. So much sass. If this is glory, Michael would prefer shame, and she will, in fact, get it. This is what C.S. Lewis says. If you reject God, he's not going to force you to endure his company. If, If what you do is reject his glory for shame, he is a very gracious God, and he will give it to you. And that is what we see un, uh, like developing in, the, in her story, in her life. Now, she implies that David is uncovering himself. And this is a tricky area because a lot of women are like, well, yeah, we know. We know what this guy's all about. We know what happens later with Bathsheba. He's out there exposing himself in front of lady servants. But is that what he's doing? Right? If, if you actually if you, if you saw, like in a study Bible, they have pictures of what the priests actually are wearing. There's, there's no, he's not exposing himself physically. What she's talking about is he's exposing himself as far as his, his dignity goes. You're out there humiliating yourself in front of those people. You're exposing yourself as not being the great warrior, but a man who dances around in front of a gold box, right? feeding a bunch of worthless people. Well, I'm in here. Your wife, where's my respect? Where's my honor? Where's my feast? Forget the fact that the entire household of God is out there joining in with him. What she's talking about when she says he exposes himself is not physical. Michael interprets her circumstances to justify her alienation from him. She doesn't come across as a particularly attractive person. Now, we do know that she has endured a perplexing and tragic married life. She was taken from uh, the court, given to David, taken from David, given to him, given to him, 
But how has she, all that time, was she like Rachel wrestling with the Lord, wrestling with her circumstances, striving to be sanctified through everything that occurred? Or what you see is that she has resisted the sanctification of the Lord and has become an uglier person, not a more beautiful person. She's not a proud, tall, beautiful daughter of God here. She is a daughter of Saul, it says. It seems to be her, her idea is to be aloof and inaccessible. The king ought to walk around and have attendance and, and, and act respectable and be somebody that everyone shows deference to, right? And she demonstrates her unhappiness about that by showing him a great deal of, of disrespect. Now, and here, this whole sermon, we come now at last to what it's actually about, right? That long introduction, what we, have we been talking about this whole time? What is her fundamental problem? What is the lesson that she has to teach us? It's in this idea of female servants. Now, I'm going to use the word handmaid for various reasons. One of them is it just sounds better. One of them is because it's very popular to talk about the handmaid tale at the particular moment. But she is talking about David exposing himself in front of the handmaids. And the Hebrew word is amah. Now, this word is the key to understanding the story. It appears in Samuel and Kings only as a designation for women who by work or word further the cause of the throne of Israel, specifically the house of David. When this word amah is used, it's referred to the handmaidens, and those handmaidens are women who are working for the throne of Israel, specifically David. And she says, look at, look at you, act that way in front of them. And, and they are the key. Those handmaidens who are honoring him, who are showing him respect that she's jealous and envious of, are the thing that she ought to have become. Now, let's look at this word briefly. Okay? There's, there's a few instances in which it's used, and it tells us the kind of woman that, it describes, that, that it's supposed to reflect. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11 and 16, you see in the very beginning with Hannah what this word is supposed to represent, the kind of person. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11 and 16. It says, And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, your handmaid, and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. In verse 16, Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. That's that Belial again. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Now, Hannah is not a daughter of Belial. She's not a worthless woman. She is a handmaiden of Yahweh. She is serving in Yahweh. Where is she? She's, she's saying a prayer in the Lord's house to the Lord. Why? Because she wants a son. She honors what God honors. She loves what God loves. And she is there serving the household of Israel. Because when you have children in Israel, you're serving the household of Israel. When God hears her, like her matriarch Rachel, she honors the Lord. She says again in 1 Samuel 2.6, I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. Now next, we turn to Abigail, right? And if you, want a, what, if you want an example of what a Christian woman ought to be, Abigail is it. In 1 Samuel 25, she calls herself David's handmaid. Verse 24 and 25. She makes an important request in 1 Samuel 25, 31. Abigail is a daughter of Hannah, a worthy woman, who requests 
just what Hannah requests. Please, make me your handmaiden. She wants to be a handmaiden to David. Why? Because those who recognize the anointed of the Lord kiss the son and honor the, the God who placed him on his throne. Abigail honors the Lord's anointed, which leads to honoring her husband and blessing his household greatly. Now, after this episode that we're talking about in first, or 2 Samuel 6, the term continues to be used in exactly the same way. Later on, um, we read of a woman named Makah who asked Joab, David's servant, in 2 Samuel 20, 17, she says, I, I, I'm coming to you, a handmaiden of you, Joab. And she calls herself a handmaiden. Women throughout 1 Samuel and Kings call themselves the handmaiden of David, the handmaiden of the Lord's anointed. Why? Because they're helping him build the household of God. And, and what, what Michael does is despises David and his, and his, his actions before the handmaidens. He does, she is opposed to him and his household and anyone who honors his household. Now Bathsheba calls herself David's maidservant in verse 13 and verse 17 of 1 Kings 1. Amah appears in the story of the two harlots in 1 Kings 3. After God promised Solomon to give him both riches and honor so that no other king shall compare with you all your days, it is Solomon's choice of the correct mother that proclaims his wisdom throughout Israel. Remember that story? The two harlots, one baby died in the middle of the night, so she went and stole the other baby. Well, she calls herself a handmaiden of Solomon. She is there as well to serve the household of God, to serve David and his household. She understands the deference and honor due to the Lord's anointed. Now, after Hannah, the only women termed handmaiden are those who speak to David, his commander Joab, or his son, always in praise and deference. They want to be handmaidens in David's household. Why? Because being a handmaiden in David's household is better than a thousand years living in the tents of the wicked. So what you see in Michael's life is that her failure to obey God and worship him correctly causes her to disrespect and dishonor her husband and the anointed of the Lord, the priests of the Lord. You see that she gets further and further and further away from God. God honors them who honor the anointed of the Lord. God honors those who, who love what he loves and honors what he honors. David understands this. He says, right? It's not an accident what he says. He says, by the maids by whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor, Michael. There is a kind of woman who is near God, who recognizes me and understands what I'm about, who understands what the household of God is about, and they will honor me. Now, how do you honor, better honor your husband? How do you better honor, honor the priests? How do you better honor the Lord God? By honoring your husband. And if you want to do that, it starts with your relationship to God. In 2 Samuel, if you turn back, this is, this is the conclusion of the story. In verses 21 and 22. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in, in your eyes. But the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. What he cares about is the household of God. What he cares about is Yahweh, who is the Lord. That's what he cares about. He will act however he's got to act 
Whatever God tells him to do, he will do that before the Lord, and he will do that before the watching world, and he doesn't care what people think. He's more interested in honoring the Lord and obeying the Lord than than looking good in front of people. And what we find is that that's exactly what the apostles describe as as the proper servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 23 says that what? One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Honor from men? No. Honor from God? Yes. Honor from those who recognize God and love God and love what God loves? Yes. 1 Corinthians 3.18, Let no one deceive himself, for if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become, that he may become wise. 1 Corinthians 4.10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. The story that, right, we look, we go back and we think we see this backwards, idiotic story from the Old Testament where women don't know how, right? Oh, is that what this whole story is about? Honoring things and and calling your husband Lord. What we see is that the story is always the same. If you want to go up, go down. If you want to look wise, be a fool. David cares more about the glory and honor of the Lord than even his own wife. Do you, men? Do you care about obeying God and what God says of you more than what your spouse says of you? Right? Is your husband someone in in whom you show deference to and respect and honor because he is your husband because you love the Lord your God. You're like, you know what? Look at, look at the sad sack on the couch. <laughs> you come in there on a Saturday, and he's watching, of all things, golf. Sorry, Steve. <laughs> I just, I love you. I just can't imagine going lower in that than sports. <laughs> and there he is. And you see the sad sack. And you, know what I'm, and you say, you know what I'm supposed to do right now is honor this. Then you are near God. Then you are near the kingdom of heaven. Right? If you come in and you're like, no, 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 let's animate this sad sack now. Right? Now let's go back for just a second because Michael's problem isn't that she has something to say to David. It's that what she has to say to him is, is based more on her standard than God's standard. As I said before, there's a laundry list of things that she could talk about. How about multiplying wives, David? Deuteronomy 17 says don't do that. Right? She's not honoring him by getting him closer to God. She's dishonoring him because he is close to God. Now, if you want to have something to say to your husband, look around. I'm sure there is something to be said. How you say it is what I want to talk about, and that is respectfully. Right? And then, even though he's wearing the uniform and he acts like a schlub, what are you still supposed to do? Show him honor and deference. And you want to strike a blow to the culture of the world, I love it. I'm, I love it so much. I love when my wife is talking to a neighbor, and they're like, oh, hey, can we do X on Saturday? And, I, and even though she doesn't need to, I love it. She says, let me ask my husband. And you just, like the liberal minds, you can see them just like rattling around inside their brain. And, and when, when she shows that kind of honor and deference towards me, especially when I'm not there, it, it, it is like, it, it, is that all it really takes to fight the good fight? Is that really what the culture wars come down to? Yes, and what I've been saying for two years is that it's never been easier for us to strike a blow for the kingdom of heaven because the snowflakes are so very easy to offend. You don't even have to try. You just get this out and start reading it. 
Women, respect your husbands, honor and obey them. <gasps> in the whole world, men and women start clutching their skirts and getting the smelling salts, and they can't handle it. it right? The less you think of this world, and the more you think of heaven, the more you're going to do for heaven. Whether you're a man or a woman, when you obey God and you don't care how stupid and backwards you look, but what you care about is honoring the Lord, you will prosper. You will be fruitful. Right? The, the world calls us fools? Fine. Your sister calls you a fool? Fine. Neighbors? Fine. Are you honoring God? That's the question. And one of the ways to determine whether you are or not is whether you're respecting your husband just for wearing the uniform. And this, this is, again, we're t- how many times does the Lord have to teach us this lesson? We'll come back again and we'll do, it, we'll do it next week, too. Let's do it next week, too. We want to fix the world. Let's go get them. And, and the word of God says, how, like, okay, call your husband Lord then. You want to change the world? Right? You want to strike a blow against the, king, the kingdoms of darkness? Call your husband Lord. You're like, whoa, whoa, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Right? I'm not going to do that. And, and we're often presented with this kind of choice. Is it really that, that? Because then what we have to do is turn inside. And we have to deal with all of the reasons that we don't want to do that. And, and it comes down to obedience or not. And that's what we're always talking about when we're talking about these massive cultural shifts and, and doing all these great things for the world. It, right? If you want to do great things in the world, do great things in your own house where nobody hears you but your husband. If you want to do great things in the world, care more about whether you're obeying God than how it appears. That's what we're called to do. And, 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 and you think you don't have the strength to do it. You think, there's no way I could call this guy Lord. Right? And, and, and what, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do as all of those people who ought to have been bowing down before him are treating him with disrespect and dishonor? Right? That's your example. The example for men and women is Christ. And what is it? Humility. Humility in honoring those things that God honors, loving the things that God loves, and obeying him in all things. And amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your goodness and kindness to us. I pray, Lord, that as we go from here, that we would, all of us, receive the correct lesson from this text. Lord, that you would comfort those who are uh, struggling with fertility, those who have uh, had a difficult time getting pregnant, who have lost a child, I pray, God, that you would comfort them especially, Lord. And I pray that you would not let the kingdom of darkness use this text against us in a way, um, Lord, that prevents us from learning the true lesson. May all of us, men and women, child and adult, obey you in your word, love you, and love the things that you love, and honor you, uh, and honor those things that you call us to honor. I pray for the ladies here that that you would give them grace and that you would give them... um, a deep passion and zeal for your glory, Lord, and and to honor those things that you have called them to honor. And I pray for the men that they would, in fact, be respectable. In Jesus' name we pray, and amen.